when I, uh, I work with a lot of my stepmother passed away. Yeah, I'm a pediatric Josh and Caden present Backpedal, a podcast chronicling the lives of random people we meet on the street. In each episode, we attempt to arrange the answer to one simple question in chronological order. That question, what's your story? Nineteen forty one. See, I think I made a connection just recently and I have to think why. Well um well maybe I'll just say this that I started out in Massachusetts and my father was from Guatemala, uh, first generation, and um he actually was the first Latino to go to Harvard. So, um, and I don't know if that was Harvard undergrad or Harvard medical, but that was his background. And my mom was from Maine. <coughs> but I was also raised by a Mayan Indian woman who had been in my father's mother's home. Um, so why am I telling you that? That's just kind of a big deal that's in my life. Well, awesome. For me, that's a big deal in my life, having been raised by three very different people. And, uh, I used to come into the house and not know when I came into the house whom did I go say hello to first and whom did I have dinner with because Tina who is the Mayan Indian woman and my father grew up in a place where they could never have a meal together and my mother being a Yankee was sort of like of course you could but culturally they couldn't so um, anyway I'm just trying to think. So the, the woman that was, was sort of a primary caretaker for you was the, the Mayan woman? Yeah, or? both my mother, actually all of them were at different okay. points, but, um, but um, anyway, I'm just trying to think if there's a story in there other than to say that's a really formative and still is very formative because now my mother is turning 90 and Tina is turning 88 and they live together in an old Victorian house in New England and uh, we're still trying to figure out how to be fair to both of them and work that out. So that's, I guess, on my mind. got into college with, with a small uh, wrestling scholarship, so to say, but I wasn't smart enough academically. I didn't have a science, nor did I have a language to qualify for college, so yeah, it was tough on me. I, I flunked everything. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Did you have... Uh like a big match where there was a recruiter there? Well, the in college, I was only there a short time, but, you know, and that was only because of the wrestling. It wasn't because of my academics, and that's for doggone sure. And I was lucky, lucky to get in. But I do remember one match where we wrestled, I think it was Kalamazoo College. We were a small college, 
Russell Kalamazoo and I beat the guy. I pinned him quick. And they moved me up three weight classes and I beat that kid. And the dean was there. And then they called me, they put on my sweatshirt, the giant killer, because I beat a guy, you know, three weight classes above. <laughs> nice. But that's, yeah, but this small school. You know, I went to Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, and uh, our whole bus and our basketball team went. And every one of our wrestlers lost. Every one. Slippery Rock, I don't know if you're familiar with Pennsylvania. Not really. Teachers College. Uh, it was all phys ed. So these guys were, you know, linebackers come from Pennsylvania, a lot of pros. But anyway, our basketball team got beat by 40 points. Oh, wow. And our, yeah. So the bus ride back with the basketball team was pretty depressing. Yeah. You know, it was a five-hour ride by bus and nobody talked. See, that's a great story. I like the, I like the giant killer story. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, right away. I had a knock on my dorm door. The Teeks, TKO, was a fraternity for athletes then. Okay. Wanted me to join. And in the meantime, I said, by the time I join, I'll be out of here, boys. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, every class, I went from chemistry. I dropped that because I, terrible. So you were competing against Slippery Rock, which was yeah. the the school that was really strong in athletics. Oh, very strong, compared to ours. And what was your college? Yeah, it was Adrian. Adrian. Small, small Methodist college. Okay. And it was, uh, it was nice. But that's, I guess I did have a story, didn't I? <laughs> that was a good one. I like that. All right. I appreciate your time today. Okay. Mike the Giant Killer. So we estimated that Mike may have started his first year of college in 1961. At that time, about an hour and a half northeast of Adrian College on I-94 in Detroit, Michigan, Mike would have had the chance to prove he was a great wrestler. In 1961, the NWA, National Wrestling Association, not the other one in LA, <laughs> was operating in Detroit and had colorful champions including Bobo Brazil. Bobo's initial wrestling name was Boo Boo Brazil, the South American Giant. Mm. If Mike was able to survive Bobo's famous cocoa butt move, he <laughs> may have become a champion himself and a true giant killer. Oh my gosh. Another NWA champion in 1961 was perhaps scarier, if only because his name was so phallic. I mean, who would ever want to step into the ring with Dick Bruiser? <laughs> <laughs> So I got that from uh, Wikipedia. Yeah, Wikipedia. Great source. Great source. Mike, great interview. Not so much. No. Not he so was much. Very lackluster. It was tough to get a story from Mike. Mm -hmm. We had to work for that one. He liked to cut his grass. No, I guess I cut the grass. He did. He liked to do lots of boring things. He liked to buy apple pies and talk about them and how expensive they were. I do have something interesting. I did pay $10 for a piece of pie. A piece. One piece. One piece. But once he did start open, opening up and talking, he gave us our one big soundbite out of this. Yeah. The giant killer. The giant killer. Giant killer! I mean, that's the best quote we have mm -hmm. from anybody. For sure.
I think it might be more entertaining to see Mike in the NWA that we're all familiar with. <laughs> you imagine that one for a second. Yeah. He would be like, are you guys sure you want to buy these 40s? They're pretty expensive. <laughs> you get all the tax on these 40s. Yeah. And there should be, they should be paying enough taxes where things would be reasonable. Not straight up, not straight out of Compton. Straight out of Michigan. Straight Proud of it. Michigan. Not leaving. Yeah. He's going to cut his grass yeah, in Michigan true. until the day he dies. <laughs> That's for sure. So, Bobo Brazil's famous move was the Coco Butt. Correct? Coco Butt, yep. And did Bobo uh, ever face Dick the Bruiser? <laughs> I think he did. Yeah? I think he did. I don't... Th we did watch um, a video, but I think it was Coco from later. And he was doing... Um, he did the cocoa butt, I think, in both of the videos I saw. One of them was explicitly a cocoa butt video on YouTube, and the other one was a match. That just reminded me how ridiculous I think Big Time Wrestling was. Yeah. And for all you haters out there who are into wrestling, either Big Time or real, I know the difference. Big Time Wrestling is all scripted, it's all fake. We know the outcome ahead of time, or at least somebody does. The fighters definitely do. Wrestling is a true sport that I have respect for. So if there's comments to leave, don't leave them about that because that's... <laughs> Big time wrestling, the SNL of the boxing world. <laughs> it's a joke. Two thousand one. Well, I guess, you know, I... I work with a lot of immigrants here. I'm a pediatric physical therapist and I work in early intervention, so I go to people's homes and most of my clients are um, undocumented immigrants, as far as I assume, I don't actually know. And uh, I've gotten pretty involved in this whole notion of how to deal um, just with you know, I think immigration is a really uh, important issue that needs to be dealt with in a better way than we're dealing with it. Because I think there's a lot of people that come to this country and work really hard and contribute, but are unprotected and under-acknowledged. Um, I know people are afraid of systems being over too much demand being put on our system, but I guess I find it very strange that we're at a time of such low unemployment and people are acting like these immigrants are taking jobs from people. Um, I know it's a complicated issue, but I actually worked in a uh, detention center in Texas at the border where people who came in seeking asylum, political asylum, and hearing stories of people that are... Um, living in, in particular, the, they call it the Northern Triangle, and that's Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And Honduras and El Salvador are the worst, where the gangs are, basically, they run the country. They have so much power. They have power over the government, they have power over the police. And so, anyway, I um, what I realized was just I have this idea that it's just super important for us to realize they keep talking about borders and I feel like you know what we are very interconnected whether you want to admit it or not and 
it's not to say that all of the problems in Central and South America are due to American policies, but some of them definitely are. Historically, we've supported some very um, autocratic and violent people. And, um, and I think, you know, having talked with a lot of these people that were running for their lives, they left small businesses that they had started and they were being extorted by gang members who said, give us money or we'll kill people, which is what they did. And they did it publicly and they killed children in front of their parents and out in the public. So, and I feel like we have drugs in this country. We have a market for drugs in this country and we sell arms, both of which are major factors in the violence in Central and South America and Mexico. And there are so many innocent people that have lost their lives. And there is also so many people in this country that are losing their lives related to drugs. So I feel like we actually have a lot more, you know, a wall is not is not what's making the, di isn't gonna make the difference. The fact is our lives are very intertwined. And then you come to a place like California, and this is Monterrey Street, and this is San Luis Obispo. Well, guess what? You know, Mexico and the Spaniards had a lot of influence here. So things change, and I just feel like, I guess I would say, I feel like it's hugely important for us to try to find a solution that's, um, honest about the fact that we're really very involved with one another and and I believe that a lot of these immigrants don't want to leave their country where they have businesses where they have family where they have language where they know the culture but they're not you know it's not like it's a road trip it's not like it's a fun road trip people are being um, I read an article in, in Doctors Without Borders they're treating um, people all along the pathway to get here and they say it's like a war zone. They're seeing torture and rape and murder and and people are doing that for fun. They're not leaving for fun. So I just, I guess I would say that I have a real desire for people to be realistic about what's going on and to think more holistically about how we're involved as a country, both as a population that uses drugs, as a country that develops arms and sells arms and as a country that also has gotten involved and I don't mean just blame I just mean let's admit we have relationships but also the way our, our international trade agreements which is something I don't understand very well but I've heard from people that like farmers lost their small farms to large agribusiness that came in and um, so I would just like I would really love it if we could um, think a lot about what is a, a comprehensive, realistic, um, compassionate solution to the problem. I've worked with immigrant families now for probably uh, 15 years. And, you know, a lot of these people, I've heard stories about coming across the border and being raped or people shot in front of them, like one woman that I went, that I worked with said she says, her, you know, that they shoot from the sky, she heard, and that um, the person next to her is basically face got blown up. Um, and now that, you know, I, those are some stories, those are not all the stories. Two thousand ten. Okay, so one time when 
one time when like me and my siblings were little, we went and we were at our dad's house because it was his turn for like us to have like us to be with him. Mm -hmm. And so um, we went and he like he took us to Disneyland and it was like right on the Sunday when we were supposed to go back with my mom, but he was taking us to Disneyland, so of course like three little kids are gonna be like, Yeah, let's go, right? So we go to Disneyland and we're having fun and all of a sudden we come home and there's police all over, like everywhere in our like near our house, right? And so me and my little siblings are like freaking out, like not knowing what's happening. It's like near our house, police officers are with my mom, like my nan is there. She was a police officer at the time too. And so we're like, what the heck's going on? So our dad gets us and he puts us into the house so my mom can get us. And we're like, what the heck? What's going on? Right? And we're just like, we just came back from Disneyland. You know, what the heck? Who, yeah. What are these people doing here? So we go. And me and my brother, being the sneaks that we are, go behind the door so that we could hear what the officers are saying. And my grandpa and my dad are arguing with the officers about like having us with him. And I guess my mom was gonna file an Amber Alert because he technically kidnapped us because it was her time and she should have had us. And so my dad had to give us to my mom and the police officers were everywhere. Like they're like, they walked us to our car to go with her mom. And after that, I've been afraid of police officers for a long time, but it was great. It was fun. It was a fun experience. Parental abduction is defined as the concealment, taking, or retention of a child by his parent in violation of the rights of the child's other parent or another family member. That's what potentially could have happened to the young woman in the last story. However, it is more common for a child to be abducted by his or uh, her mother or father than it is to be taken by a stranger. Children taken by strangers or slight acquaintances represent only one one hundredth of one percent of all missing children, according to the Washington Post. Kristen Smart disappeared May 25th, 1996. Around 2 a.m. that morning, she was found passed out on a lawn by Tim Davis, who was leaving a party that they were both attending. The details of the story get hazy from here on out. Apparently, Paul Flores and Cheryl Anderson started to walk her towards her dorm. Anderson split off and left Flores to walk her there alone. Flores was the last person to see Smart, on June 29th, 1996, more than a month without a sign of smart, authorities were led by cadaver dogs roaming the campus to room number 128 in Santa Luisa Hall. Flores lived there with his roommate, Derek C. More cadaver dogs were brought in and each dog alerted on a corner of the bed located on the left side of the room. It was Flores' bed according to the police report. It indicated a strong possibility that a deceased body had been there. 20 years later, there is, has been very little progress in Smart's case. Stranger abductions such as the case of Kristen Smart are fearsome because they appear random and so often involve rape or homicide. How did you decide to go from um, your friend who was telling a story of being kidnapped from by a parent to a story of Kristen Smart who was kidnapped by a stranger or acquaintance. 
I wanted to focus less on a parental kidnapping and more on a stranger abduction because parental kidnappings are much more common and I'd like to highlight, although rare, stranger abductions do do happen and they can be very scary. More scary than a parent abduction because at least with a parent abduction you're generally going to assume that your abductor, your kidnapper, has your best interest at heart. They're taking you because they really want to be with you versus a stranger kidnapper who may really want to be with you, but definitely not for the right reasons. Yeah. Let's see. I would like to end this segment with a poem that Kristen wrote. I face into the wind. It purrs and whistles, its secrets into my ear. Under the sun, floating upon the salty waters, I cringe with excitement to be in such a heavenly place. Two thousand sixteen. Yeah. So, so one thing that, that um, comes to mind, you mentioned that you worked in a detention center, mm -hmm. and I've just uh, had this personal curiosity hearing some stories about these places. Um, do you have a feel for sort of the, the typical way that somebody ends up in a detention center? Are they asylum seekers that have sort of showed up and said, here I am, I'm trying to, to enter the United States, or is it more that, that they were trying to cross and were apprehended and brought to a detention center? Yeah, it's tricky to know. So I volunteered for a week in a detention center, so that's different than, but that's kind of the typical thing. Um, and you ask, in the very beginning, people come and they have to just sign in. And <coughs> then we have an initial meeting where we say, we introduce them and we say, basically, this is a non-governmental volunteer project of multiple charities working to be sure that you have legal representation. And we ask people, did you come by the puente, which is the bridge, which means the official way, or did you come by the river? And um, in the week that I worked, there had been a problem with storms, so there was a lot of backup. So we had like a flood of people coming in. Um, and I would say at that point, um, probably, um, two-thirds had come by the river. Now that doesn't mean they weren't planning on doing it officially. I'm not, I, I think that would be roughly it. They're coming, but you know the scary thing is <clears throat> if you hear the stories of something they call yeleras, which are called, ref it's refrigerators, if you're apprehended, the stories we heard from people that were put in these places were pretty terrible. Now they're not supposed to be kept more than I think 24 hours or 48 hours but they kept people in, in, you know, caged up, not able to use bathrooms. They terrified them. Like, at one point, one woman told me that the guard, like, swore at her and was calling her, like, you know, all sorts of things and said, grabbed her phone and said, I'm calling the Mara, which is the gang, and I'm telling them you're here. And she was, like, freaking out about it. There's a lot of psychological... You know, I don't know how common, but I certainly heard a lot of stories where people weren't allowed to use bathrooms, they were kept in really small areas, they're kept very cold and not given clothing or bedding. So it's not meant to be an easy entrance. 
legally, I'm pretty sure they're supposed to be kept there 24 to 48, maybe 48 hours, but because of the storms and the backup, lots of them were kept there for four and five days. So, um, <clears throat> so anyway, um, so I'm just kind of pointing out that would be a deterrent for wanting to come uh, through the, um, I, I'm fairly sure whether you come through the puente, the legal way, when I say legal, the official entrance, or the river, um, I think you end up in those. I'm not positive, but um, but you know these are people that don't have a lot of reason for trusting. Um, Absolutely. So. Yeah, and the thing that really struck me was, so <clears throat> historically up until Trump, and I don't know if he's had luck changing this you're able to claim asylum in this country if you're being discriminated against. So, so if you simply come from Syria and it's a civil war, they wouldn't accept people. Which is, you know, you can imagine that seems like as good a reason as any, but, um, but if you can prove that because you're gay, because you're native, like an Indian, the Mayan Indians in Guatemala are discriminated against. So they were a recognized group um, women are a recognized group because in Central America the violence against women is institutionalized and the government doesn't protect them. Like if you go to the police as a woman for domestic violence, they'll say go home and work it out with your husband. Or they'll put the husband in jail for 24 hours and then he goes home and he kills his wife. So it's a very, um, you know, it, um, it's pretty uh, common. There's a lot of so that was recognized in the United States as a means of protection um, if you were experiencing domestic violence and couldn't get um, and if you went against gangs so if these people could say you know the gang came to me and and everybody is subject to that young women are told that they have to be the girlfriends of the gang or they'll pay for it. People who have small businesses, and I met a number of people who had started small little businesses, and they would come and say, give us this much money, and it would be beyond what was doable. And, um, and they say, or else, you know, we'll kill your mother, we'll kill your children, we'll do this or that. Um, or um, then young men were recruited all the time, like either join us or we'll kill you. So, um, you know, it's not like you have, it's very easy, you know, in this country, and frankly, I think corruption is becoming we're kind of a little clearer that we're not as clean as we thought we were governmentally. But, um, but when you work in a system where there's so much um, corruption already, it's not like people have a whole hell of a lot of choice about saying no. It's either no and you take on the gangs, and even if you go to the police, um, like, because that's one of the things that you're supposed to be able to prove is that you you went and sought protection and didn't get it. But if you go to the police, then the police alert the gangs because if they don't, you know. So it's really it's a terrible, terrible situation. And um, so you know, I don't know what the answer is, but to me, it seems that if we could instead of giving money to governments because we give aid and a lot of the governments are corrupt if we could really look at some grassroots um, way of trying to um, trying to 
you know, it, again, it's tricky. What is the right way to do this? Who has the right answer? But to work with these countries and these people, because um, any of us would do the same if we were in their shoes. And um, so ever since um, Trump was elected, where I feel like, although, you know, Obama was actually, um, what's the word? He, um, not extradited, he sent out of the country. He deported many, many, um, you know, there was a real influx of Central Americans uh, all of a sudden. And um, I think it reflects the violence. I mean, people have done studies. Uh, academics are down there doing studies and saying, this is real, what's going on. Um, so I feel like, sorry, I feel like um, protections and rights haven't been upheld. <coughs> I've gotten more involved. <coughs> I chose to concentrate on Guatemala and a little bit on its uh, involvement in what she called the Northern Triangle. So just for a little context, I decided to look at how big Guatemala is. And I used this really cool website I found called the truesize.com where you can drag a geographic region, a country around on the map and compare it with other places. Uh, so I wanted to see uh, if there was a state that was similar in size to Guatemala. Well, this is what I found. Uh, Guatemala is 42,042 square miles with a population of 16.9 million people. Tennessee has a very similar area with 42,143.27, very specific square miles, but it only has a population of 6.7 million people. Uh, Tennessee, that's 4.03 acres per person. I looked at, at a similar kind of um, density for California to try to figure out how much space we have per person. Uh, we are 164,000 square miles, so about four times as big as Guatemala and Tennessee and Iceland. Our population is 39.54 million people, so that works out to about 2.65 acres per person. Hmm. Um, Guatemala is the most dense of all these places that we've talked about, with a density of 1.6 acres per person. So 1.6 acres is about the same size as a Manhattan city block. Um, that seems like that might be a lot of space for one person, but then you think about the population there and a lot of people are uh, subsistence farmers and a lot of people, well, a lot of land is really not usable. So a little bit about the history. Uh, specifically in regards to its interconnectedness with the U.S. Um, in 1954, Alan Dulles led the CIA as they executed an operation called PB Success. The CIA-backed coup of Guatemala President Jacobo Arbenz halted the land redistribution reform that Arbenz had undertaken. This reform was slated to remove control of 40% of the land owned by the United Fruit Company in Guatemala. At that time, the United Fruit Company was Guatemala's largest landowner. Also, 
This company was represented by the law firm of John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State and brother of the acting CIA director who oversaw Operation PV Success. Upon the successful completion of this operation, several military juntas led Guatemala, each more sympathetic to the U.S. interests than the last. Um, so yeah, that kind of went from Guatemala having an orderly government into this, this period of time where there were military strongmen that were the leaders. And uh, as I'll get to, it got even worse. Um, so in the early 1960s, the CIA would again feature prominently in Guatemala's history as the catalyst for the 30 plus year civil war that was fought from 1960 to 1996. Oh. It was 1960 to 1996. It was the CIA's effort to use Guatemala as a training ground for an invasion force for Cuba that helped spark the civil war. Of course, the invasion of Cuba, also known as the Bay of Pigs, would become the CIA's most spectacular failure to date, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, so from 1960 to 1996, that's 36 years of civil war. And that was the CIA's action was sort of a prompting factor. It wasn't, I'm not trying to say that the CIA caused all the problems that led to that, uh, but it, it certainly was involved. Um, during the course of the Civil War, the indigenous Mayan population was targeted for particularly violent actions by the government. In an official study of the Civil War, 83% of the executions and disappearances of civilians were Mayans. These attacks were carried out by successive Guatemalan regimes supported by the U.S. government. Since the resolution of the Civil War, Guatemala has experienced political upheaval, corruption, and crime. Surprisingly, the CIA is not entirely silent on its own participation in Guatemala. In the foreword to the CIA's official history of Operation PB success, we read, quote, In light of Guatemala's unstable and often violent history since the fall of Jacobo Arbenz Guzman in 1954, we are perhaps less certain today than most Americans were at the time that this operation was a Cold War victory. So that was before um the civil war that was before the civil war that we we conducted the coup or we supported the coup and i didn't even put in some of the nastier parts of the research that i found there uh, because the cia had these assassination plans where they had targeted individuals for assassination and were going to ex execute that as part of this operation mm. uh, but there wasn't that much resistance Oh, yeah. so they didn't have to go and kill a bunch of people, fortunately, but the history of, of Guatemala since then has had plenty of violence and death. So, <clears throat> so the next thing I kind of, I looked into in Guatemala was, uh, some of its economics, um, specifically agribusiness today, agriculture accounts for 60% of Guatemalan exports and employs 50% of its workforce. The U.S. is Guatemala's largest consumer of exports at 33.8%. According to a 2013 New York Times uh, story, growing demand for biofuels in the U.S. and Europe is displacing subsistence farmers. And that leads to poverty, of course. Um, speaking of poverty, in Guatemala, 54% of the population lives in poverty and 13% lives in extreme poverty. 
Half of all children under five are chronically malnourished, the worst level of malnutrition in the Western Hemisphere. In the Western Highlands of the country, where the majority of the population is indigenous, mostly Mayan, the statistics are even more alarming. The poverty rate reaches 76% and extreme poverty is at 27%. The chronic malnutrition rate for children under five is 67%. Uh, food security is of grave concern. One of the primary reasons for such high levels of chronic malnutrition is that families lack resources to produce or buy nutritious food, as well as knowledge of nutritious diets for children. So that comes from uh, USA.gov, an article there. And another thing we talked about quite a bit was gangs. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, the US helped to foster the growth of gangs in the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And part of the way that the US helped to foster the growth of these gangs was with mass deportations. Two of the most prominent gangs in Guatemala and the rest of North, the Northern Triangle are M8 and MS-13. Both of these gangs originated in Los Angeles, as explained in a 2016 Congressional Research Service report. So, so we created we them. created the problem yeah. uh, in more ways than one. So, in addition to these more well-known street gangs, Guatemala has endured the presence of illegal clandestine security services, that's in quotes. These groups, which sprang from the same intelligence and military services that were armed and funded by the U.S. during the Civil War, are still active today. The U.S. is a big arms dealer, so we made a bunch of these weapons and gave them to people in Guatemala. And now those, those gangs, those are essentially gangs, the people that used to be officials that we were giving weapons to have joined forces with gangs, become their own gangs, um, and they're still active today. So according to a website I found called Insight Crime, it's a foundation dedicated to the study of organized crime in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, these groups assist with human and drug trafficking, which brings us to drugs. So I'll just focus on cocaine because that's where I found a wealth of information. Uh, according to CFR.org, the U.S. has concentrated its war on drugs internationally on Colombia, Mexico, and the Caribbean. As a result, an estimated 90% of cocaine flow has been funneled through Central America. So 90% of all the cocaine that comes into America goes through Central America. And if you look at the map, that Northern Triangle is all of the landmass of Central America there. There's no going through it without going through one of those countries. Um, an estimated 1,000 metric tons of cocaine is smuggled through Guatemala, as reported by the CIA itself. So I found that on, on the CIA's own website, CIA.gov. According to addictionresource.com, the LD50 for cocaine is 1.2 grams when taken orally. LD50 is the epidemiological term for the quantity of a drug at which there is a 50% chance of a lethal overdose. Hmm. 
So taking these statistics to another one of my favorite websites, Wolfram Alpha, we find that there's enough cocaine moving through Guatemala to provide an LD50 to 8.33 times 10 to the eighth people. In more relatable terms, this is enough cocaine to kill 416 billion people per year. Of course, this is not a realistic calculation for many reasons. People don't actually consume drugs that way. The same people are snorting this cocaine or smoking this cocaine over time. Uh, there's also the issue of drugs being cut, which I'm not going to go into too heavily because you're 16 years old and I don't need to teach you how to become a drug kingpin. <laughs> um, but that, that was the number that was just staggering to me. Enough cocaine to kill billions of people. Yeah. Um, so all of this, the poverty, uh, the fact that farms are still being taken away from people that rely on subsistence farming, uh, the long history of violence against the poor and indigenous uh, leads to, unsurprisingly, immigration. So many of the sources that I've found in my research have cited a dramatic increase in immigration from Guatemala in recent years. Knowing some of the background of Guatemala, it's jarring to read about recent developments. Yeah, I'd like to go back to what we were talking about in terms of um, the reasons why we go into those countries. Terrorism is a main factor of why we are in the Middle East. Communism was why we were in Vietnam. Um, and it seems like, as you pointed out, Donald Trump is using the caravans that have been coming up from the Northern Triangle to uh, give America a reason to be afraid, which, as we see from communism and terrorism, seems to be a tactic in order to accomplish his policy goals. Well, yeah, I think, I think it would be ridiculous to imagine the people that are leaving the Northern Tri Triangle or almost anywhere in um, Central or Southern South America to come make this giant trek to come all the way north to the United States of America um, in an effort to do anything harmful to the United States. The, these are people that clearly are suffering and are trying to get away from the suffering which if we really examine the situation, the U.S. has, uh, in a lot of cases, probably we've, we've helped to cause some of that suffering.